I'm going to start with a question today. My question is, do you believe in life after life after death? Right answer. Good job. So, not just, I'm not just asking if you believe in life after death, but do you believe in something after that? Do you believe in life after life after death? Okay, now I didn't come up with that phrase. I, I love it. I didn't come up with it. Um, it was coined by a Bible scholar named N.T. Wright. And he invented this phrase, at least I think he did, um, to highlight one of the things that we often overlook or misunderstand about the great hope that we have as Christians. So we're fairly good at talking about life after death. So we say quite frequently and quite truthfully, if you believe in Jesus, you will go to heaven when you die. There is life after death. This is very true. This is very precious. The Bible is clear that when you die, if you're a believer, immediately you go to be with Jesus. Eternal life begins and it is better than anything that you could ever imagine. So nothing I'm saying today is meant to denigrate that. It's wonderful. It's life after death. But sometimes we stop there, as if that were the whole story, as if our only hope were eternal life in a disembodied state after death in heaven. But the Bible is quite clear about this as well, that that is not our ultimate hope. That is only temporary. There is something after life after death. And as great as life after death is, this is so much better. Now, this is what we've been studying in Revelation the last few weeks, this life after life after death. See, heaven is wonderful, but it's like an airport terminal. Nobody just takes a vacation to an airport terminal. It might be the most incredible airport terminal that's ever existed. It might be amazing and wonderful. But everybody goes to an airport terminal to go somewhere else. Temporary. Heaven is temporary. It's a wonderful place. It's an amazing place. Fantastic. Better than here. But it's not the final destination. The final destination is back here on earth. And that's what we've seen in the last few chapters in Revelation. After Jesus comes back to earth and defeats evil... All the Christians who have died up to that point and who have gone to heaven are raised from the dead and given new bodies, resurrection bodies, like Jesus' own resurrection body. And then God does away with the current creation, the the existing heaven and earth are, are, are done away with, the Legos are put back in the box, but then God creates again a new heaven and a new earth, a perfect world the way it was always supposed to be, even better. And we will live on that earth forever. So life after death is going to heaven when you die. And that's wonderful. But life after life after death is receiving a resurrection body on the new earth. And that's our ultimate destination. Now that's what our passage is about today. We're at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. We're going to look at the first five verses. These few verses wrap up John's vision of Revelation. There's there's a few more verses afterwards, and we're going to talk about those. Those are important. We'll talk about those next week. But this is really the end of the vision, and it's really the end of the Bible. And in these verses, John gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse, of what life after 
life after death will be like. So let's read them together and we'll just see, hopefully, God stirs up some excitement in our hearts for this, our ultimate hope. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we're going to stop today. I've got three things here that I want you to see, three things that are summed up in this one sentence. If you're a Christian, your ultimate future is to rule over a perfect physical world in the presence of God forever. If you are a Christian, your ultimate future is to rule over a perfect physical world in the presence of God forever. Let's unpack that bit by bit. First, you will live in a perfect physical world forever. Now, cartoonists love to portray eternal life as sitting on clouds, strumming harps, have we seen that? That's not the picture that we get of what our future is going to be like. We don't find ourselves sitting on clouds. We are instead um, in a beautiful garden in the center of an amazing city on a very real, very physical earth. Looking at the first two verses, he's describing a garden. He says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Okay? So, so we've got here is God, he's created, we saw this in, at the beginning of the book, God has created uh, a new heaven and a new earth. And then a city came down. Remember this from, from chapter 21, verse 2? It says, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. It's not in heaven, it's not staying in heaven, it's coming down from heaven onto the new earth. And so we have a, a giant city on a new earth, and now we're zooming in into the center of the city, and what do we see? We see a river, we see a tree or a grove of trees with all this fruit. It's a very physical, tangible place. And this garden that we see here in chapter 22 is meant to remind us of the first garden all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. Just put your finger here. And flip back to the first couple chapters of the Bible. So I want you to see the similarities. This is very intentional. This garden in Revelation is like the Garden of Eden version 2.0. So let's look at the first version. This is in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read a few verses. You tell me if anything sounds familiar based on what we just read in Revelation. So Genesis 2 verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground, 
Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And he continues to describe it. We'll just stop there. Did you see this? Do you see the connections? Okay. So there's, there's a river. The original Garden of Eden has a river flowing out from the river, watering the garden. Okay. But now in, in the new Eden, in Eden 2.0, it's not just any old river. It's the river of life. The river whose water satisfies not just your physical needs, but your very soul. You saw the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden 1.0. Right in the center of the, of the garden. But now, in Revelation, it's not just one tree of life in the middle of the whole thing. It's, it's a tree of life, yes, but, but like a grove of trees of life on either side of the river, springing up, bearing all this fruit that's good for food. So these, intent, these, uh, these, these connections are not accidental. It's intentional. God is trying to show us the end will be like the beginning. Just like Adam, in Genesis 1, was created from the dust, he had a physical body, he's on a real earth, so we too forever will live in physical bodies on a real earth. But everything will be better. 2.0. We see this also in verse 3. Sorry, back in Revelation. So go back to Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 3. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Or some translations say, rightly, no longer will there be any curse. Now, what does that mean? Well, we remember, right, in Genesis, in the first couple chapters of the Bible, this perfect world, this perfect Eden didn't last forever, did it? It didn't last very long at all. In chapter 3, Satan shows up, that ancient serpent, the devil, and he tempts Adam and Eve to, uh, to disobey God, to eat from the one tree that God said not to eat from. And because they did that, everything wrong entered the world. As a consequence of that sin, you can read about this in Genesis 3, God brings a curse on the earth. A curse. Death and disease and shame and broken relationships and futility in work and pain and childbirth and all other sorts of problems. Everything comes from this moment, this act of sin. And ever since that moment, this world that God created perfect is now a shell of its former self. It's polluted with evil and suffering. It's cursed. I'm eternally grateful that God's attitude towards broken things is not like mine. I'm I'm not what you would call a fixer of things, not a handy guy. When stuff breaks, I mostly say, it was nice while it lasted. Guess we'll get a new one. God didn't do that. When the world was broken in sin, he didn't crumple it up and throw it in the garbage and say, well, it was a nice try. Instead, he determined to fix it. And since all of the problems in the world, all of the curse comes from sin, he focused his energy on defeating sin. And he did that through Jesus. Jesus came into this broken world. Jesus lived the perfect life that, first of all, that Adam should have lived. 
and also that we should have lived. If Adam had lived like Jesus, if you and I lived like Jesus, there would be no curse. But we didn't. So Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we deserve, that we should have died. And when he died on that cross, he took the curse of the universe on himself. So that through his death and then victorious resurrection, he brought about the redemption of the world, making now this scene in Revelation 22 possible. That's what we see happening. The curse is removed. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, now the river of life is flowing out to bring healing to everyone. The tree of life is accessible. It's leaves bringing healing to the nations. Everything that's sad and wrong with the world is coming untrue. There's a real world, a physical world, the way it was meant to be. Now, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you that this is our hope and our future? This is huge. Uh, Do you like living on earth? Do you like having a body? Do you like doing stuff? Do you like to eat food? Uh, Do you enjoy seeing the Grand Canyon or or when the leaves change color in the fall? Well, good news. You're going to get to do that forever. Okay? Your future is not like the cartoonists say, just some, I don't know, just sitting on a cloud, strumming harps. Like, that's boring. Of course you think that's boring. That's not the hope that the Bible has for us. The hope that the Bible paints for us is of life after life after death. It's of resurrected bodies in a real physical world, just like we were created for at the first chapters of Genesis. But a world that has been upgraded in every way with no curse and no pain and no problems of any kind. Now that sounds good if you're excited about that. That's your future as a Christian. You get to live in a physical world forever. The second thing that we get to do is you'll get to live in the presence of God forever. Okay? So life after life after death is life in a perfect world forever. It's also life in the presence of God forever. Uh, God is, is quite clearly a central feature of this new world. If we look again at verses 3 through 5, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay, so God is at the center of this new creation. We saw in, in verse 1 that he's the source of the, the river of life. Did you notice the river flows from the throne of God, from the land? So he's the, he's the one who's bringing all of the, uh, the life into this new creation. In verse 5, it says he's the source of all the light, even. All the glory and the light is coming from him. So he's, he's central to the new creation. He's going to be there. But his presence in the new creation is not going to be a distant presence, like the, the presence of like a celebrity, maybe that you, you'll never get to, to be near or to see, but he's there, but he's not really close to me. But his presence is going to be intimate. As I was thinking through that this week, I was reminded of a time in, uh, it was 2003, when I was in Uganda, and, and Jen was there too, we were on a mission trip, 
in Uganda. And, and while we were there, George W. Bush came to Uganda. Uh, he didn't come because he heard we were there and he wanted to catch up. Uh, he, he, did, he didn't even know we were there, believe it or not. Uh, it was just part of an African tour. He was visiting a number of countries. Um, but when he came, his presence impacted me. Okay? It impacted me because when, when the president of the United States comes to an African country, everything shuts down. And everything is all about preparing for his arrival. There's increased security preparations. The newspapers are talking about it for weeks beforehand. Um, his presence definitely affected things. Okay, I didn't get to see him personally. Of course not. But he was there, and it made a difference. Now, maybe that's how you think of the presence of God in heaven. Well, sure, God's going to be there, but in a distant way. It'll affect things, but, but it won't really be that important to my day-to-day existence. Like, if I've got to get to the other side of New Jerusalem, I'll just not go through the center, because there's going to be all those crowds there uh, trying to see Jesus. But, you know, that's the extent to which it's going to affect my life. That's not the picture that we get, in fact. We don't get the picture of a distant celebrity or a head of state showing up and making life just a little bit different for those in the outskirts. What we see is a picture of intimacy, that God will be there, and he will be there in relationship with you, personal relationship with you. It says we will see his face, verse 4. They will see his face. We're going to see God face to face. We've got to stop here and remember who we're talking about. This is not just an abstraction, not just a word where we'll see God. We're talking about the being who's created all things, who sustains all things with his power. The most glorious, most incomprehensible being in, in existence. I mean, he created existence. God, we will see God face to face. What right will we have to see God? Who are we to see God? In fact, the Bible makes it clear up to this point, no one can see God face to face. Even Moses. You talk about like top five Bible characters. (laughs) Moses. Even Moses couldn't see God face to face. He asked, Moses asked God, He had a close relationship with God, and he asked God, show me your glory. Let me see you face to face. And God said, no, I can't do that. You will die. God said, here's here's what I'm going to do. There's this cave on the mountain. I'm going to put you in that cave. I'm going to cover you up with my hand, and I'm going to pass by you. And when I pass by, I'm going to tell you about myself, but you can't see me. And then when I'm far enough away, I'll take my hand off, and you can peek out, and you can catch a glimpse of my back. That's what you can do. And so God did that. You can read about this in Exodus 33 and 34. God took Moses, he put him in a cave on a mountain, and he covered up with his hand. He passed by him, he declared his name, he told him about himself, and then as he was far enough away, he took his hand away. Moses could peek out and just see a glimpse of his backside glory. Okay? And the Bible says, after doing that, Moses walked down the mountain, and he came in front of the people, and his face was literally shining with the reflected glory of the back of the glory of God. And the people said, Moses, put something over your face. You're freaking us out. The the, the, the radiance of the glory of God reflected off of your face is too much for us to handle. Okay, so think about that. 
This is the reflected glory in the face of a human of the backside of God as he's going away. It's too much. And now God says, we will see him face to face. Intimate, personal. And his name will be on our foreheads. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to walk around with tattoos on our foreheads that say God or Yahweh or Jesus. This is a symbol of ownership. Kids do this all the time, right? They get a toy and they write their name on it. In the movie Toy Story, it's a great example of this. Andy wrote his name on his toys. And the toy knew when Andy wrote his name on you, that's when you were finally in. Right? You were his toy. You belonged to him. Same thing here. God will take a personal interest in each and every one of his children. Each of us will see him face to face. And he will write on us, mine, you belong to me. One of the greatest things about life after life after death is that God will be there. And not in a distant sort of way, but in a personal way. You will see his face. You will be known by him even as you are known. You will have intimacy with God forever. Now here's the challenging question, and, and I, think, I think this is probably the, the key moment in the sermon. So you can pay attention again. Okay. This is the most challenging question for me. One of the key features of the new creation of life in eternity is that God is there. Okay. Now here's the question. If that weren't true, if God weren't there, but you still had everything else, would you be satisfied? So if you had everything from point one, if you had the perfect world, the way things are supposed to be, if you had um, you know, a beautiful creation, if you had no sickness, no death, all your friends are there, all your family's there, everything you ever wanted, delicious food, you know, the, 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 the sky's the limit. If you had everything in the perfect creation, but God wasn't there, would you be satisfied? Would that be okay with you? Okay, this is a challenging question. And it's one we have to consider and, and answer honestly. Don't just say, oh yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I need God. God's got to be there. Really? Would I be satisfied to spend eternity enjoying all of God's good gifts if God wasn't there? That's a challenging question because it gets to the heart of our faith. Why, why am I following Jesus now? Am I a Christian because I really, really, really want Jesus? I, just, I love him and I want more of him and so I'm following him because I just want Jesus? Or am I a Christian because I want all of the good things that Jesus gives? Because I don't want to go to hell. Because I want a better marriage. Because I don't like feeling anxious. Why am I following Jesus? Would it be enough if at the end of all this I got to eternity 
and it had a perfect world with no anxiety and no need and no problems, everything's great, and just Jesus isn't there, would, would I mind? Would I feel a sense of loss? Would you? And there's a huge difference between these two things, right? You, you get it. You know, one of them is like a woman who marries a man, a rich man, for his money. Right? She doesn't love him, she just wants his stuff. And as long as she has access to his stuff, to his house, to his cars, she doesn't care if he's there or not. In fact, probably she would rather he wasn't there because he just gets in the way. She wants the things, not the man. On the other hand, it could be like a woman who marries a man that she loves very much. And to her, it doesn't matter where they live, it doesn't matter how much they have, all that matters is that they are together. So you've got two married women, but two very different relationships. One of them we call a gold digger, and the other is a loving spouse. And the way you tell them apart is this very question. Would you be happy if you had all of your husband's stuff without your husband? The thing that makes the new creation great is that our husband is there. All the other stuff is bonus. God will be there. Now, this is a soul-piercing question, so I, I, I get it. If you're, if, if, if you're struggling with this, and it, you know, if this doesn't excite you, and you just think, I don't know, I mean, I, I kind of would just like to have all the stuff. All right? If that's where you're at, then I would just urge you, spend some time in prayer. An honest reflection and repentance. Like, just say to God, I've been a gold digger. And I'm sorry. I mean, I understand it, right? I mean, God's really rich. <laughs> he does have great stuff. There is that temptation. Just come to him for his stuff. And, and, and we can all fall into that. So just spend some time. If this is, if this is hitting you at all, spend some time in prayer and just say, God, I'm sorry. I know that you are better than anything else. I repent. Lord, would you please make yourself real to me? Would you make your relationship with me more real that I would value you more than any of the things that you give? And I guarantee you, as you do that, as you begin to pursue God in that way, he will respond. And you will get excited about this truth. You're going to see his face. He's going to be there. That is the best thing about the new creation. This is life after, life after death. Perfect physical world in the presence of God forever. There's more. And the third one is also very cool. You will rule forever. That's the third thing. You'll rule forever. So you mean a perfect world, perfect physical world. Okay, that's, that's where we're going to be. We know who we're going to be with. We're going to be with God. That's going to be awesome. And then third, what are we going to do? We're going to rule. Now, at first glance, it may not seem that exciting. So in verse 3, we read this. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. We say, wait, wait, wait. All we're going to do for all eternity is worship God? Sounds boring. Sounds like we're back on the clouds with the harps. 
Uh, or maybe worse, maybe, maybe that means you're going to be stuck in a never-ending church service. We keep looking at your watch and the pastor just never stops talking. Right? And for my 75th point, but that's not the picture here. In, in the Bible, worship, it, it includes those things. Of course, it includes, um, you know, coming to church. But, but worship is much bigger than that. Worship is our whole lives. Worship is not just what we do on Sunday mornings. It is our whole lives offered to God to live for his glory. So Romans 12.1, it's a great verse for this. Romans 12.1 says, Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. To present your bodies, present your whole life to God as a living sacrifice, that is your spiritual worship. So verse 3 is saying that when it says we'll worship him, it's saying in the new creation, everything we do will be worship. Everything we do will be worship. And what will we be doing? Well, verse 5 says, they will reign forever and ever. Now that sounds like a lot more fun. In the new creation... We will be servants of God, but also rulers of everything else. We are going to rule over the perfect world forever. So this is another place where Genesis pops back up. In Genesis 1, when God creates humans, this was his plan, that we would rule over the original creation. Genesis 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over. That's another way of saying rule over. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. This is why God made us in the first place. He makes all of the the creatures and he, he fills the earth. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he makes humans, Adam and Eve. And he says to them, you're in charge. Rule over. I want to see what you do. I've made this world. I've filled it with raw materials. Now go have some fun. Okay, this is, obviously, this is not God just handing over the keys to the car and saying, hey, wreck it if you want to. I don't care. It's his creation. He loves it. He wants us to take care of it. But he's giving us the keys. And he's saying, just go. Experience life. Make things. Do... It's the same idea as the, as the video game Minecraft. Can you play that? This open universe game where all you, you just have all these raw materials and, and there's no point to it other than just build things. And kids love it. Why? Because it's human. It's, it's our nature. It's what God made us to do. And this is like a, a universe-wide game of Minecraft. God says, I made it all for you. Now go build stuff, create things. The first version was ruined by the fall. But now... Now, God has removed the curse. He's made all things new, and he gives us the same marching orders. You will reign forever and ever. So I made this world for you. Go explore it. Develop it. Create it. Rule. I can't wait to see what you come up with. That's what we get to do forever. We will rule in a perfect world in the presence of God. Now, in Revelation, this is where the story stops. There are a few paragraphs of closing statements. They're important. We'll talk about those next week. But really, the story ends here of of Revelation and also the story of the Bible. The whole 
thing from Genesis to Revelation is wrapped up in this moment. So in a sense, this is the end. But in another very real sense, it's also just the beginning. Now, I don't know anyone who's captured that better than C.S. Lewis in his book, The Last Battle. This is in the Chronicles of Narnia, a great series. And The Last Battle is his version of the book of Revelation. It's really interesting to read through. Um, and in his, his world that he's created, the, the world is called Narnia. And in the last battle, uh, the, the old Narnia ends. It parallels the events of Revelation. There's a final judgment. The old Narnia passes away. And then the very same things we read here happens. Uh, the, the God figure creates a new Narnia, and the people get to enjoy it. And so I'm just going to share with you, just close today, with the last paragraph of this book, which matches perfectly with the last message of Revelation. Here's what he says. As he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's the future. For you, if you're a Christian, this, this life is not all there is. And life after death is not all there is. There is life after life, after death. One day you'll be raised from the dead and for your eternal future, you will reign with God in a perfect world forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that gift. It thrills my heart to know the hope that we have that this life is not all there is, but that that we will... um, we will one day look back on all our years, whether 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50, 60, 80, 90, 100 years, and we will see that it has all just been the title page and the introduction. And it is only when Christ returns and makes all things new that the real story starts. I'm excited for that. Help us to live our lives now in light of that with the joy and confidence that comes from knowing the end. In Jesus' name, amen.